We are continuing in the book of Proverbs. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Proverbs chapter 3, practical wisdom for life where the commandments of God and the precepts of God are applied and appropriated uh, to the realities and the practicalities of our lives. As you're turning there, many of us are familiar with Jesus' words in the 10th chapter of John's gospel, John 10.10, when Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. And we have seen in times past that there's at least two different kinds of life that are described in the scriptures. One is bios, biological, physical life, the air in our lungs, the beating of our hearts. But the life that Jesus offers is not only a physical life. There's another word, zoe, in Greek in the New Testament, meaningful life. Hopeful life, joyful life, life everlasting. And the wisdom of Proverbs is instructing those who will hear in the path of that life, in the path that leads to that life, the path that is that life. It's a a life of flourishing, is what's offered. So, Proverbs chapter 3, 1 through 12, containing some of the most well known verses. Uh, in the Bible in 5 and 6. So listen now to God's word. My son, do not forget my teaching, uh, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh, and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, and with the firstfruits of all your produce, Then your barns will be filled with plenty, your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. The book and structure of of Proverbs, as we've seen, is in some ways like a fine piece of artwork. And it at times, in particular ways, draws uh, the hearer, the reader's attention to some of the details of that structure. And we see that, it seems to me, in these 12 verses. These 12 verses are divided into six uh, sets of instructions or six sets of admonitions. And they each consist of two verses. One and two go together, three and four, five and six, and so on through these 12 And each section of two is calling for an act of wisdom that brings about a particular blessing or benefit as a response. So take a look just through these verses uh, in that structure. Verse 1 and 2. Keep my commandments. And what is the result? Peace will be added to your life. Verse 3 and 4. Bind love, steadfast love, and faithfulness around your neck. What does it result in? You will have good success. 
verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. What happens? He will make straight your paths. 7 and 8. Be not wise in your own eyes, and you will know healing and refreshment. Verse 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth. What happens? Your barns will be filled to overflowing. And then 11 and 12. Yield or submit yourself to the Lord's discipline, and you will know his fatherly hand, his loving hand in your life as a child. Now, you look at these uh, six sections or admonitions, and they may appear to be a bit disconnected, but all together, taken as a whole, what Solomon is presenting here is a picture of a life that is flourishing. And that's what you have, a life that is prospering. You'll find favor and good success. You'll experience healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Barns will be filled with plenty, vats bursting with wine. This is a picture of a flourishing life, a blessed life. And in the world of the Old Testament, there's a word, one particular word, that captured and captures this kind of life. Whether you know any Hebrew in the Old Testament or not, you've probably heard this word. It's found in verse 1 and 2. And I think it captures well the whole of these 12 verses. Let your heart keep my commandments, and peace, peace will be added to you. Peace, it is that word, shalom. Shalom, peace. Oftentimes it's used in the Bible, this word in English, peace, as a greeting. I think almost every New Testament letter begins with the greeting of peace. I flipped through all of Paul's 13 epistles recorded in the New Testament. I think every one he begins with a greeting of peace. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But this Old Testament idea of of shalom is much more than a greeting. In the larger sense, it's referring to a life that is whole, it's complete, it's full, it's flourishing. Three concepts, I think, help initially to support the the idea or fill out the idea of of shalom. This is a life, one, that is not empty, it's full. Two, this is a life that is not in chaos, but in order. And three, it is a life that is not in hostility, uh, it is a life in harmony. Harmony with God, harmony with others. So Solomon here, the wise sage, is painting a picture of shalom or peace in these verses. Years of life and peace are added to you. We have God's favor and good success. Our paths are straight. We know refreshment to our bones. We experience abundance, barns filled with plenty. The love of our Heavenly Father is felt deeply. What does this peace, what does this shalom look like in the here and now. Uh, Andy Farmer, who's a contemporary Christian author and and pastor, wrote a book called Real Peace, What We Long For and Where to Find It. Shelly and I, my wife and I, uh, read this book not long ago. And he begins the book by saying that the whole book was motivated by a picture. And it was a picture that was a gift uh, given to him by his wife, And the picture is of a horse running down the home stretch of a big race. 
Thousands of people screaming as the horse is churning up the track. Well, this horse is Secretariat. The legendary uh, thoroughbred who won the Triple Crown in 1973. Uh, Andy Farmer's wife had gotten the famous photo, and she got the jockey and the photographer, uh, the jockey Ron Turcotte, to sign the picture. And this picture hangs in his house. But he said there's an odd thing about the picture. The horse and his rider are virtually alone in the shot. Secretariat, you may know the story, won the Belmont by a mind-boggling 31 lanes, over 80 yards, setting a world record which still stands today. Uh, Turcotte said, I was along for the ride. But then he said, Farmer, I was looking at the photo one day and I noticed something I hadn't seen before. At full speed, in front of thousands of people, the horse seems absolutely calm. I looked for any sign of stress. I couldn't see anything. It dawned on me, he's running just for the fun of it. I was watching an animal do what he was created to do, do it with amazing beauty, and do it with what seemed like pure joy. I thought to myself, that's peace. I need me some of that. Now, while images of a beautiful Caribbean beach or a pristine snow-covered meadow may come to our minds when we think about peace, and, and maybe it includes those kinds of pictures in our minds, but it's much more than that. This peace, this shalom, is a life that is thriving and flourishing in God. God created his, his people to be flourishing, right? alive in him. The early church father, uh, Irenaeus, said, the glory of God is man fully alive. He created man to flourish in him and in his world. Now, we may read this passage and think to ourselves, good success, healing, uh, barns filled, vats bursting. In the next section, he he mentions riches and honor. And we might wonder, is this some kind of prosperity gospel? What is this? As if we're, uh, as mankind, the center of all things, God's kind of out to make us healthy and, and wealthy and comfortable? Not at all. The so-called prosperity gospel is nowhere to be found in Scripture. That false gospel, it's centered in what God merely gives to man. It's not in any love for God himself. The wise sage here is teaching the opposite. It's not first about what we receive or gain from God, but what we offer to God. Notice the exhortations. Trust in the Lord. Honor the Lord. Fear the Lord. Don't despise the Lord's hand of discipline in our lives. Those are the motives of a God-centered life. So as we read and hear and think about these words, they're not surefire promises of health and wealth. We know better than that. The people who first heard these words knew better than that. One author said said this, the motive clauses in these admonitions or instructions They're not promises at all. They're descriptions of how life generally turns out for those who understand its principles. They offer no guarantee against sickness or poverty. 
Uh, we, we live in a world full of poverty and sickness and stress and fears, brokenness, and all kinds of forms. But it's so important, the wise sage here wants us to see the source of this flourishing. That it's not in health, that's not the source. It's not in wealth, it's not in comforts, it's not in position. It is life in the Lord. That these things come from Him. That's where life is found. This is the one who is able to do above and beyond what we ask or imagine, but who also has this beautiful and glorious vision at the consummation for us as the church of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul, the apostle, could say in Philippians 3, while he's in prison in in AD 60 or 62, coming near the end of his life, having suffered much persecution, persecution by that point, that he could say, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count it as rubbish that I may gain Christ. He knew where true life and flourishing comes from, that it's not found in health or wealth, but in the Lord Jesus. This life of shalom or peace, wholeness, flourishing, I think is woven through these admonitions in just a a few ways. I want to point them out. Significantly, this peace comes in ways completely counter to the culture in which we live. The first is through humility. Humility. And and that humility takes on a certain form here uh, in this passage. And it's, it's trust. Trust in God, not in ourselves. This is a humility that makes much of God, little of ourselves. So we see this in verses 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He will make straight your paths. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing and refreshment to your life. You see the strong uh, kind of juxtaposition between God and man, how we are to view God and relate to God, how we are to view ourselves. What's the admonition? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. This is a trust that's not just an uh, assent, right? Mental assent, agreement that God exists or agreement that this is who God is. This trust means, as we hear, leaning Don't lean on your own understanding. Trust, lean upon God. Or it's to have confidence in God. To the point that one is resting in Him for their life security. Future, safety. And it's in all your ways, acknowledge Him. Another important word, acknowledge. It's not just theoretical knowledge. This is a personal knowledge, a personal relationship. So that in every day, in every decision, in every conversation, it's the person of God and the word of God that is guiding us in our lives. On the other side of that trust coin are humble hearts. Humble hearts. Do not lean on your own understanding. Don't be wise in your own eyes. What does it mean to not lean on your own understanding? God has given us minds to be used. 
First of all, the wisdom of God is not irrational. Nor is he directing us away from the use of our minds or the use of our reasoning or our understanding. Faith, biblically, is not what we use when reason can't get any further. Reason itself takes faith. You have to trust, any person has to trust that their reason is reliable in any kind of way. That takes a kind of faith or trust. So trust in God is not antithetical to reason. Rather, to not lean on the understanding of my own mind, I think it means at least two things. One, to recognize that we have limitations as people. Our minds have limitations. I think all people would agree with that. So there's a certain humility that should come in our lives. I have a limited capacity and ability to understand and comprehend the world and the Lord. But it also has to do with what source we are depending upon for knowledge. What am I depending upon? What is anyone depending upon in making sense out of the world? Or for navigating life in this world? What's the ultimate foundation upon which we make sense of this world? That is not just our minds. That is God and his revelation to us. Uh, We live in a culture that believes, at least in some corners and circles, that man's mind is the greatest source or foundation for directing the world and making sense out of it. For some, there is therefore no room for a God who sovereignly and providentially orders things. I think using our minds and trusting in the Lord is captured well in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 31, 30 and 31. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Man uses his mind, he prepares for, for battle, he prepares his horse Man uses his mind to design bridges, to study nature, to build ships. But when he begins to be wise in his own eyes, it leads him to say things like, this is an unsinkable ship. As if man is kind of the master of the world. The Christian is different. The Christian is to know that because God's sovereign power and providential will go beyond beyond our full comprehension... When the waves of hardship and confusion or loss or death begin to break up the boat, we need more than our own designs. We need a Savior who can say, peace, be still. We need a greater foundation. Personal stress, anxiety, fear, all these things will put our trust in God to the test. Where will I seek for peace? And we should watch out for those peace substitutes. I'll call them a sort of knockoff version of peace. One of the main ones, I think, is uh, a sense of control. 
If I'm not having the kind of order or harmony I want in my life, I will wrestle for control. A little firmer grip. Control of my life, control of others. Andy Farmer, again, he says, there's something funny about people. We live in a world we cannot control and then spend all our lives trying to tame it or keep it from taming us. There's a word for that, futility. So trust in the Lord is about who's who's controlling me? Who has a grip on me? Who are we leaning on for life and security and peace and flourishing? This call to trust and the struggle for control. Uh, We've all experienced it. We've witnessed it. I think it's seen very clearly when uh, a, a parent, a dad or a mom, is seeking to encourage their young child to, to jump into the pool. They're standing on the edge of the pool. Uh, let's say the dad, his feet are firmly planted on the bottom of the pool. The water's only up to his waist, maybe a little bit more. And he's urging and encouraging his son to, to jump into the water. Not only are his feet firmly planted, but the son has the life vest on or, or the uh, floaties. Not a lot can go wrong with this, right? But, but what does the son do? In every corner of the world, the children do the same thing. Just come a little bit closer, dad. Just step a little bit closer. And the dad takes a couple steps closer, but still trying to encourage his son. Essentially, this is what the son is saying. Dad, I have a better way. I have a better way. Just keep coming a little bit more. Right? Trying to control Lacking in trust. In that kind of picture, trust and control are at odds. Lord, I want to trust you in being obedient. I want to trust you in being bold for the gospel. I want to trust you in being more sacrificial in my living for for others. Break the chain of control in my heart. Control over others. Control over outcomes. That you would have control The humble heart that trusts will know more of God's power and presence and peace. Another avenue for peace or shalom is not just humility in the form of trust, but gratitude. We see gratitude. And this gratitude also has a particular form to it. It's not just gratitude or thanks as a result of what God has been giving to me or granting to me. It's actually evidenced and expressed in giving to the Lord in honor of his name. Gratitude expressed in giving. This is in verse 9 and 10. So you've got humility and trust, and here you've got gratitude. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled to plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. The, the words kind of escalate here, the calling upon this person, because there's a move from that inward piety, the call to trust in the Lord, now to this kind of outward manifestation of it. Honor the Lord with what you have. This picture, overflowing barns, bursting vats, this is a picture of God's, both his his, uh, sustaining grace, but also it's the Lord's expression of trust in this person that he uses these things to be a blessing to others. For the benefit of others, the benefit of the poor, etc. 
How do I know if I'm honoring the Lord with my wealth? We could certainly point out the principle of the tithe in Deuteronomy 12 and other places, or uh, the principles that we see very clearly in the New Testament, giving cheerfully, giving bountifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. But notice also, it is a giving of the first fruits. In other words, it's, it's not a giving of what is left over at the end of the week or at the end of the month. It's giving as a first priority to the Lord. Derek Kidner said, giving of one's first fruits in the face of material pressures is a simple test of faith. We, at varying degrees, feel pressure materially, yet we are called to, to honor the Lord. That word honor is to uh, recognize a weightiness of the Lord. I think um, C.S. Lewis captures well the tension that we ought to feel. He said in Mere Christianity, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If our giving habits do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're too small. There ought to be things we want to do but cannot do because our giving excludes them. It's probably something good about feeling a tension in our giving to the Lord. Is it costly? I think what interests God is not how much we give, but does my offering honor him? That's what grabbed Jesus' heart and attention in the woman's offering of the two small copper coins in Mark 12. She gave out of her poverty. It cost her something. And costly faith is life-giving faith. It causes a flourishing in our lives. So you have gratitude. And then a final avenue for peace or shalom, flourishing, is submission to the Lord's hand of discipline. That's in verse 11 and 12. My son, don't despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. We can think of this discipline as God's way of discipling his people, Let's hear that word in there, disciple. It includes not only his reproof and his correction, his chastening, but his instruction and his encouragement and the testing of his people. And he uses his word and spirit and providence to shape and disciple and discipline his people. The author of Hebrews in the 12th chapter of Hebrews quotes from these verses here in Proverbs 3 calling the believers to bear with God's hand of discipline that they might endure amidst their suffering. If you are suffering as a person in Jesus Christ, whether it's because of outward circumstances or it's the result of our own doing, our own sin, God is not against us. He is with us and he is for us, loving us, as one whose victory has ultimately been, been won, ultimate peace has been won at the cross, but who's preparing each one of us, we could say, with some finishing touches. He's the potter. We are in his hands. He cuts and he breaks down and he builds back up, strengthening us, shaping us, sharpening us. Discipline 
His hand of discipline and suffering is hard, but it's, a, it's of infinite worth. Apart from suffering, there is no cross. Apart from suffering, there is no suffering Savior. There is no hope. It's through suffering that our redemption was bought. And it is through suffering and discipline that we are being shaped into his likeness. Now, there can be uh, two temptations here in response to God's hand of shaping his people. One is to despise the Lord's discipline. We're told about both of these uh, in verse 11 and 12. To despise the Lord's discipline. We might say that's the active response of anger. To throw off the Lord's hand of correction, discipline, and shaping. The other is to be weary of his reproof. That's kind of the passive response of despair. I don't want to bear it any longer. But the wise path forward is what Hebrews says, to be trained by it. God seeking to train us as his people by his hand of discipline. Jesus himself learned obedience through what he suffered in Hebrews 5. And he sympathizes with our weakness as our great high priest and friend. So we have a friend in Jesus Christ. He's with us. He's walked the path of discipleship, of suffering. And he is leading us to that final place of peace. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, how we do thank you for your loving and gracious and good hand of discipline and of discipling us as your people. How we thank you for it in our lives individually and in the corporate body of Christ. Lord, may we know in greater measure this shalom, this peace that, that peace that surpasses, that goes beyond our full grasp and comprehension. But help us to find that peace, that, that rest in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we pursue lives full of thanks and gratitude, and indeed submitting to um, your hand of guidance, and discipline, and correction in our lives. And Lord, may we trust in you with all of our heart that we would have a deep and abiding peace. In all of it, Lord, guide us to the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have life. And we pray this in his name. Amen.